0: Welcome in, Late Kick is live, it is Thursday night. It's already May 12th, year of our Lord, 2022. If it's a revolution you want, that's okay. I'm probably on board with you at this point, but let's at least make it enjoyable. We are jam-packed, high atop downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Very sunny today, as evidenced by the sunburn, yours truly, sports here. If you're listening on podcast, forget everything I just said, everything's good to go. Hey, are we finally gonna get some common sense scheduling in college football? Across multiple conferences, mind you? It could be coming, and it could be not too far down the road. The longest-running series of 2022 at this point on this show, which is Bold Predictions, is back for a seventh edition this evening, and it still continues to just churn merrily along. So as long as you like it, we're going to continue to do it. Georgia Mood Tracker tonight. Also, underrated alert. There are some programs that we haven't touched on in a hot minute that we need to touch on tonight, and it's kind of a shame on us situation because we could have been talking about them a lot more, Maybe even should have been talking about him a lot more. Hey, appreciate you guys in Rigby, Idaho, because you're tuned in tonight. Paris, Tennessee tuned in. Okinawa, Japan, by way of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And thank you for your service, by the way. And Franklin County, Virginia. Look, we got a lot of wants in life, but we only have one need on this show, really. Like, I want to be college football commissioner, but there's one need. Director Colin and I were talking amongst ourselves today because producer Jesse abandoned us, selfishly taking a company allotted vacation day. And um, Colin and I realized we got one need here. And that need is to have 100,000 subscribers on this YouTube channel. I came armed with a statistic. Let me lower the paper so you can see how serious my face is. I got a statistic. You know how serious it is when the paper pops. A lot of you are watching our show. In fact, we had more traffic the last month than we did in October, which is when they're playing football so thank you for that we appreciate it here's the stat 59 percent of you are not subscribed to the channel and it costs nothing to do it and we're going to get a great big surprise courtesy of cbs when we hit 100k so let's just make it happen i humbly but firmly ask let's just make it happen 100k subscribe 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 and then your duty is done all right let's dive into the show i feel like that was forceful but also interactive enough uh we have a mild crisis in college football Scheduling has not been right in this sport for a little while. I haven't liked it, most of you haven't liked it, judging by my inbox, but we have thought, "Eh, there's not much we can do about it. Well, then steps in the NCAA Football Oversight Committee earlier this week and says, you know what? You don't have to have divisions to have a conference championship game anymore. Bye. And it sounds like that will soon be approved by whichever other committee that has to go in front of. A lot of committees, so a lot of people can have a lot of important seats at this table probably more than we need but here's the end of the day summary it looks like multiple conferences are about to make a move to do away with the classical division and to maybe have a lot more flexibility when it comes to their scheduling now the reason i'm leading the show with this is because you ask me about it every day for example even though i'm going to talk about the acc in just a second i'll eventually get to the sec a lot of you know for example oklahoma and texas are coming into the sec right well, that uh, equates to 16, if the math is correct. Stats and Info confirms it. Stats and Info says 16, that's a lot of teams. Are we still just going to have divisions? And uh, well, you've got this situation in SEC right now where, like, Georgia has not gone to College Station since A&M has been in the SEC. So that's not working for anyone. Well, how do you revamp it? Well, there have been a lot of different thoughts. Pods or just doing away with the divisions entirely. Well, let me, let me bookmark the SEC. Let me start with the ACC because Jim Phillips, the conference commissioner there, that was the guy who went on the record, I think most uh, loudly this week so far, and he said something that I think a lot of us like. He floated the old 355 scheduling model out there. Most of you probably had not heard that. Now, I am sort of cheating because I have someone who's kind of involved in the scheduling process who I always ask to keep me informed. And so the 3-5-5 has been floated for a little while. And that's essentially, if, if we ever did away with divisions and we just had, you know, line them up 1 through 14, that's where you would have three teams you play every year, your three fixed opponents, and then you would play five, divi- or five conference opponents one year, and then the five you didn't play that year, you'd play the other five the next year. So, you know, you're playing eight conference games a year, which is the current structure of the ACC schedule. That means you would play everybody every conference opponent you would face within a 24 month span and it would just keep rolling over and keep rolling over now a lot of people are rooting for this i'm rooting for this it doesn't have consensus approval but it sounds like it has enough to where they can move forward with that Uh, it's not finalized but i think that's probably what they're headed towards now there are some pushbacks on it because of structuring and there's some pushbacks on it because and this is a serious thing. Well, that means somebody has to finish 14th out of 14. The horror, you know? Um, If you're a loser and you get labeled a loser, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Uh, But if that's the worst that you can come at me with, if that's the biggest con that you have over there in your little bullet points, I got far more pros. I think the biggest hurdle they would have in the ACC is deciding, okay, well, who's playing who every year? How do you determine those three fixed opponents? Now, in the SEC, it's a little bit different ballgame. In the SEC, they have 14 teams right now, but they are soon to have 16 teams with the addition, 2025 at the latest, stay tuned on that, of Texas and Oklahoma. So a different situation according to you know how you would schedule things mathematically and how you would structure it rather mathematically, but they've been working on this in the SEC since 2019. Then COVID happened, they kind of tabled it. I think Andy Staples had... Greg Sankey on the record, he quoted him with um, a lot of this entire kind of—I don't know—called a problem, but this entire matter. It sounds like it's so straightforward. It sounds like you could go in a room and come out with it at the end of the day, and you could have this figured out. That's not the way this works. And so Greg Sankey was on the record is talking about how, yeah, we got some proposals. He wanted to take um, sort of a blue sky approach of let's put everything out there and let's see what works. There's been one school of thought that when OU and Texas arrive in the SEC, they'll go to quadrants, which is, of course, four by four by four by four, and you play everybody in your little quadrant there, and then you decide the rest of it however you want to. Maybe it's quadrant versus quadrant per year. But also, you still do not have consensus on that. Divisions, pods, how many teams per year do you play on a fixed basis? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? I I highly doubt they go past that, but that's a lot of the things that they're still talking about right now. And and no one knows for sure when OU and Texas are getting there. 2025 at the latest, but yet every time you talk about that, everybody sheepishly says 2025 because also people remember how out of the blue that headline popped on them in the media day cycle last year. And it's like, well, for all we know, they're working something out right now and we would never know about it. And believe me, you would never know, nor would I. Pains me to say it, nor would I, if they were working something out. But if it is a pod format, here's the most important thing to take away. If you have four by four by four by four, that's just for scheduling purposes. Because in that kind of model, the number one team and the number two team, regardless of pod, would face off in Atlanta for the SEC Championship. Conference championships are clearly not going anywhere. They are very, very successful. They are very, very uh, profitable. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure that out now what about the big ten the big ten was the conference i thought about first when i saw this headline because full disclosure we were just talking about this the other night you and i were sitting here and we all agreed which we rarely do this day and age in this sport that the big ten has got a balance problem and you know how imbalanced the big ten is well they have not had a conference winner from the west since they reformatted the league, which is going on like a decade now. And if you take Wisconsin out, it's even worse. It goes all the way back to the early 2000s. So you see that. You see that Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State are all on one side of the Big 10. And you think to yourself, well, the NCAA Football Oversight Committee just gave you permission to do away with that structure entirely. Isn't this gonna be a great new day for the Big 10? Because now they may be able to get a Michigan versus a Penn State, or an Ohio State versus Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game. Maybe, if they so choose to go that route. There's a lot more to it than that, as is usually the case. They are, in very short order, about to announce a new media deal up there. So that's first and foremost on the plate, and it's going to be really big, and everyone in our industry is talking about it, and no one knows who's going to get it. But anyway, after that happens, then they'll start figuring this stuff out and the reason why it's not a slam dunk the reason why it's not break glass and press red button goodbye divisional play in the big 10 is because they need to maintain rivalries i'm going to give you my pushback in a second they need to maintain all those rivalries they got up there and they also have really good numbers already which you don't care about and you really shouldn't care about but the people making the business decisions up there understand they have a really good tv product already so there is one school of thought that's just let's not mess with a good thing we already get the most attractive cross-divisional games that we could ask for anyway and they largely do here's what i would say number one to the maintain the rivalries issue it's not an issue you'll always have fixed opponents maintain them feel free be my guest i'm all for it uh, number two anything that you already have in terms of a quality product would be enhanced at least if you did away with divisions. There is no world wherein the Big Ten dissolves divisional play and just goes with one versus number two in Indianapolis for a Big Ten championship, and their numbers decline. Or if the numbers do decline, it's for reasons other than you don't have divisions anymore. So it seems like a slam dunk. And to me, even if I dive past the surface, it still seems like a slam dunk. But at the end of the day, at least we have some traction on something we can get excited about. There are about 14 other headlines this week that were negative, and I think it's a lot of to be continued. You know, I'm not even wasting time on the show with the whole NCAA and NIL guidance they issued, where I'm not, not even getting into it. I did so many radio hits this week, they asked me what I thought. I said, I don't really care. I don't think it holds water. I don't think that that's nearly the answer. There's no definitive conclusion to anything that people want, nor will there be. That wasn't realistic from the start. So this right here, what's written on this piece of paper, fixing the scheduling issue in college football, at least that's something we can actually sink our teeth into. Much like my favorite show, which I just wrapped up. um, What was it? Four seasons? Colin, how how, how many seasons did Ozark go? I think four seasons. Anyway, yeah, there's, there's Colin. I just wrapped up Ozark. What does this have to do with the show? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. But I found myself feeling blessed. I should feel that way every day. But in a very specific way, I'm watching Ozark, and I feel blessed because we here at Late Kick do not have to rely on the sort of funding that they have to rely on in Ozark. And I'm going to tell you why. You can deal with Mexican drug cartels all you want to. We have Academy Sports and Outdoors. And when you got Academy Sports and Outdoors backing you, you don't need Omar Navarro, nor his evil cousin Javi. Don't need them. No spoiler there. Academy Sports and Outdoors has you, whether you're playing a game on the field, whether you're watching a game off to the side, they got the chairs, just like they got the equipment. So we'll go and we'll play in Smyrna, Tennessee, this Friday night. We got a big double hitter. Softball team's four and two right now. And we will use all sorts of things that have been purchased from Academy Sports and Outdoors. And our growing fan base will circle Our dugout, and they'll be sitting in chairs from Academy Sports and Outdoors. And when it heats up, because apparently I was just informed we're playing until like July, and you need the tents, the tents are available at Academy Sports and Outdoors. The water bottles, everything you think you could possibly need out there and more. The grills, not the least of which, are available at Academy Sports and Outdoors. So I am going to clip this and send it to them tomorrow just so I can show that if they ever bet I could not work Ozark drug cartels and their wonderful products. In the same ad read, they were wrong. We win. And they do too, there's no loser here. Uh, Stewart's Draft Virginia tuned in tonight. Herman, Missouri, and Opelika, Alabama, all tuned in. Thank you so much. Niffers by the tracks. If you're ever in Opelika, my favorite place to eat there. Many Niffers, only one by the tracks. And I think you understand why it needs to be by the tracks down there if you know anything about me. Bold prediction time, version 7.0. This has become our most popular segment. Let's dive right back in, shall we? Got five of them tonight. Five big predictions from you that, according to you, you are willing to bet your own money on. Number one, Dylan Gabriel. UCF, no. UCLA, no. He's at Oklahoma now. And the first bold prediction is Dylan Gabriel is a Heisman finalist. Forget the second one. We'll get back to that in a second. Dylan Gabriel, a Heisman finalist, huh? On the boldness scale, I put this at an eight. That doesn't mean I doubt Dylan Gabriel, nor do I doubt Oklahoma this year. I have questions. I don't have doubts about them. It's just really hard to be a Heisman finalist. That's the first thing we need to remember. Anytime we get a bold prediction that has to do with the Heisman, if you tell me Bryce Young's going to win the Heisman this year, it's still bold. It's not as bold because he's already done it once, but it still would warrant like a four or a five. It's just hard to win the award. Secondly, there's a new everything up there. Now, there's reason to be confident because an offensive coordinator like Jeff Lebby has a track record that you can buy into, he has proven production. And you've got a guy in Dylan Gabriel that you believe possesses the physical tools. Uh, you You do not have the wealth of supporting cast that you would want, but you certainly are not without a supporting cast either. So there's reason to be excited there. I just, maybe you guys feel differently. When I picture Oklahoma football this year, I see a path where they even win the Big 12, but they're not lighting up the scoreboard offensively. And over time, I'll tell you what that coincides with. It just coincides with the overall philosophy that Brent Venables wants to play with. I I don't know that we've never seen him as a head coach, so we're waiting. All of us are waiting, but I don't know that I see Brent Venables going into a Saturday with visions of you know hanging 50 every week. You'd love to do it. Scoring points is how you win football games, but there's a complementary style I think they'll play. So what I'm saying is I don't know that we'll see these monster stat games from Dylan Gabriel this year, even if they're winning that he would need to warrant a trip to New York City. So I made that one an eight. Not totally impossible, but I would be mildly surprised by it, maybe even moderately surprised. The next one, though, gets a very, very strong rating. The next bold prediction is Kansas beats Texas, comma, again, period. And boy, that's a big word there, again. Uh, Does anyone even want to look into the abyss of what it would mean if Kansas beat Texas? Of course, a lot of you are shaking your head yes. So why not? Let's recklessly speculate. If this happens, it's happening at the end of the year. Okay, I'm putting a nine on this, by the way. I just don't think it's happening. I refuse to envision this. But if we are going to entertain this thought, please understand, this game does not happen until November 19th. It's in Lawrence. Anyone been to Lawrence in late November? We'll see. Weather, we'll see. But also, if Texas is vulnerable, losing to Kansas that late in the year, it means they've lost multiple games already. Because you know what your team is by that point. Now, this is not an early season, you know, kind of catch them before they hit their stride sort of deal. This is late in the year, second to last weekend of the year. Uh, They got a game against Baylor the next week. So maybe you're telling me look ahead. But look, if Texas is rolling, if they're like a one or two loss team, they're winning by multiple scores in this game. But if they go into this game, maybe uh, let's see, four and five or five and five as opposed to nine and one, and it's no different record wise than it was last year, yeah, at that point, anything's in play because this is certainly Super Bowl mode on steroids for Kansas. The kids in that locker room have already beaten them once in Austin, so they're not going to feel like it's some insurmountable task at all. But what I'm asking is if you had to guess the point spread on this game, because it's so far down the road and there's so many variables with Texas this year I could see Texas minus 30 and I can see Texas minus like seven and a half or eight Uh, that's not realistic what I'm saying is there are very very wide ranging possibilities here but I do not believe this is gonna happen and so I'm saying that's a nine but if it does happen put the women and children to bed because it's gonna be a very very uncomfortable December for Steve Sarkeesian next up Staying with a UT, but we're going with the SEC version. Tennessee upsets LSU and goes undefeated heading into Tuscaloosa. Now, Let me give you a point of reference here. This is a six and a half on the boldness scale. Notice what I just said. That is a prediction for Tennessee to be five and zero oh when they play Alabama, and I only gave it a six and a half. There's a pretty decent shot of this being the case, and it's not because they play a bunch of cream puffs before Bama either. But let me tell you what the schedule is. And then let me tell you how this could play out. So the game itself is indeed the third Saturday in October this year. Refreshing for us to stick to a rivalry's name for once in our lives. Ball State, they open with, should be a win. They go to Pitt, point spread just released on that one. Tennessee is favored by four at Pitt. So they're favored. Doesn't mean anything, but they're favored. So easily a very winnable game. Third game, Akron at home, should be a win. Fourth game of the year, They play Florida at home. They will be favored. Short favorite, but they will be favored in that game. The only game they'll be a dog in, point spread wise, before they play Bama is the game at LSU. That's probably going to be about a field goal game somewhere around there. All these games are winnable. And I also need to let you know, if you'll notice, if you're watching on YouTube, Tennessee has a bye before they go to LSU. LSU's on the road the week before at Auburn. This could happen. And if it were to happen, imagine that. Imagine an undefeated Tennessee, obviously highly ranked, if that's the case, welcoming in Alabama, and Alabama does not have the easiest road right before they play Tennessee either. So that could be, all of a sudden, what I've been wishing for for a long time. That could be the shine put back on one of my low-key favorite rivalries in the history of college football. I, I just mentioned the third Saturday in October. Director Collin knows because he was raised the right way what the third Saturday in October means. He put it there on the graphic. If you're 19 years old and you're driving around right now, maybe even in Knoxville or Tuscaloosa, you don't even know. You don't even know about this. You may have heard rumors that this was once a big rivalry. Your life and what you've observed with your own two eyeballs has shown you something completely different. 15 or 16 in a row right now for Alabama, whatever the number is, it's embarrassing. So when's it ever going to change? Logic tells you eventually it's got to happen, at the very least. I don't even care if Bama goes in there and wins 31-24. to If we get undefeated, Tennessee welcoming Alabama in. Remember last year when Arkansas welcomed Texas in? And you may have turned that game on, and you got an environment like you weren't ready to see? And afterwards, you heard all those Arkansas folks talk about the pent-up rage and the old school energy that festered and festered and festered from what historically the Arkansas-Texas rivalry had been. And it just bled out that night. That would happen in Neyland Stadium. That would be Tennessee. They haven't been on equal footing, nowhere close when it comes to playing Alabama, so you haven't witnessed it. But I imagine students at Tennessee, for example, people of that age, if you guys were undefeated when Bama came to town, you would look around that place, and you would say, what, what is this? Like it, Our volume knob stops at 10, but it feels like a 12 in here tonight. Why does it feel that way? Because they would then find themselves in a place they haven't been in, and here's the phrase, quite literally a generation. Oh, General Nealon, just close your ears, my friend. But yeah, that's the case right now. So that would be big. I'm calling that a six and a half. I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world to suggest Tennessee may be undefeated when that happens. And if they do, spoiler alert, we'll be there. Next up, we're going all the way to the West Coast. Now, this is interesting. Jeff said, first-year coach Dan Landing wins the Pac-12 over Lincoln Riley. So not only are we calling the Ducks to win the Pac-12, we're just flat out talking about who they're gonna beat. This one, I gave a five. So let's, let's break it down. Oregon winning the Pac-12 is not at all crazy now you're talking about predicting the exact matchup that's a little more out there but if you're going to pick someone from the south pick usc or pick utah well they picked usc Uh, the folks at fox would love this i would love this and i don't even work at fox but also here's the flip side here's why this gets a little crazy you know if these two teams were to play tomorrow uh, oregon would be favored on a neutral field But that's not where this game would happen. This game would happen at the end of the year. Now, if USC is in the Pac-12 title game, here's what that means. It means it worked. It being year one, Caleb Williams quarterback, Lincoln Riley, and all the transfer portal additions, it worked. So whatever they did in year one, it clicked. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. So if they're in the Pac-12 championship game, thus meaning things worked, that's going to be a really formidable opponent. And at that point, what I'm probably having to do if I'm picking Oregon is I'm choosing Bo Nix over Caleb Williams. I have followed Bo Nix for a while. I have been burned investing in him in the past. Now, if you want to sell me on the fact that he just needed a change of scenery and they're going to utilize him the right way at Oregon, that's cool. I have been sold that bill of goods, though, not the Bo Nix bill of goods, but the whole you know, bigger, faster, stronger, new program, new sticker on the helmet sort of deal. I've been sold that many times. That's why I'm very hesitant, although I saw the same things that you guys did in the spring game. Still very hesitant to just believe that Bo Nix and Oregon are gonna be primed to go on a Pac-12 championship run. But as I've said since he was in high school, he possesses the capability. That's never been the issue, never will be the issue with him. It's just, do they have the right ingredients there this year? And if they were to run up on USC at the end of the year, because they don't play them in the regular season, if they run up on them in the Pac-12 championship game, will that version of USC still be able to be taken down by a Bo Nix-led Oregon? That's what I have trouble with. That's why I made it a five. Otherwise, I could easily see Oregon winning the Pac-12. Last one here. Now, this one's going to sound bold, but it's really not at all. Nebraska wins the Big Ten West. Don't sleep on Scott Frost as the follow up there. Well, I'm drowsy on Scott Frost, but let me tell you something. This isn't even bold. There is no bold prediction in the Big Ten West. So this is like a four for me. Every season can be your season. You could have won three games last year like they did. Who cares? This could be your season. Uh, They have the fifth best odds to win the Big Ten this year. Not the division. They have the fifth, fifth best odds to just win the conference. They have the second best odds therefore, to win their division right behind Wisconsin. Now, to give you an idea of how wide the gap is in the Big Ten, at least in terms of odds, Ohio State, I think, is a one to two favorite to win the Big Ten. Next up is Wisconsin at 10 to one. And uh, you go down the list a little ways. Nebraska's 14 to one. So there, perceptionally, is a big gap between Ohio State and everyone else. I would agree with that. But we're not talking about winning the Big Ten, we're talking about just playing for the conference title, therefore winning your division. Look at the murderer's row or lack thereof that we're talking about. We're talking about Iowa, we're talking about Wisconsin, uh, we're talking about Minnesota, Purdue, Illinois, Nebraska, and Northwestern. I know on paper, it would look crazy if you went from three and nine to whatever record it would require, nine wins, maybe 10 wins, in order to make it to Indianapolis. I'm just telling you, knowing what their margins of losses were last year, Casey Thompson transfers in at quarterback? No, it is, it is not that big a leap. And if you have forgotten or you've been tuned out right before we wrap it up here, not the show, just the segment, look at the graphic on the screen. Look at those losses. The losses are by eight points and by seven points and by three points and by three points again, or is that four, that's three. Uh, seven points, five points. There's the nine point, there's the blowout, the nine point loss. Oh, seven points, seven points, ridiculous. So yes, that could happen. I could absolutely see that. I give that one a four on the boldness scale. I am probably enjoying those segments, probably because you do the heavy lifting as much as anything that we've done. Conway, Arkansas, tuned in tonight. Thank you. St. Paul, Minnesota, rough weather. Stay safe and tuned in. And Crandall, Georgia. Thank you guys so much for watching. Also, thank you guys for being here live. I've been thinking about the live portion of our show And I have some plans for rewarding people who watch the show live. Don't care if you watch it the next day, just maybe a little added bonus if you watch the show live. So nothing for you yet, but don't worry, we are thinking about that. Let's do a mood tracker tonight, shall we? Let's talk about the University of Georgia, your national champion, Georgia Bulldogs. I have found there are two types of college football fan. I'm not talking about casuals and hardcores. I'm talking about even amongst hardcore fans. Let's just split that into subsets. There's the fan that wins a title, and then they, they're content. You know, they're, so there are probably two kinds of Georgia fans right now. One kind of Georgia fan, they just won the title, and you prop your feet up, put your hands on the back of your head, uh, pick out your cigar of choice, even though half of you don't smoke cigars, and you just say, we made it. And you did. They can never take that thing away from you. But then there's another kind of fan. That wins the title and their appetite only grows stronger. I'll tell you what most of those have in common. The ones who get content are usually the younger generation. Not all the time, but it's usually the younger generation, whereas the ones who want to gobble up every possible win they can are the older generation. Here's the difference the older generation has felt prolonged hunger. Not in the literal sense, hopefully, but if you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, if you live in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and you're 60 years old, your entire life has been a drought you you remember 1980 but man it was a long time ago now if you're 17 years old you you've in your adolescence seen georgia rise to power and they played for one title and now they won this title and you probably if you didn't know any better you think this is just kind of the way it's supposed to be you know 10 or 11 win seasons that's our baseline right no historically no and so here's what the more seasoned veterans amongst your crew knows. You gotta take every single win you can get while you can get it. Because once the history books are written, they're written. But right now, it's kind of feeding frenzy mode. Chums in the water. So you got a powerhouse program, you got a coach there in his mid 40s that for all you know could be there another 20 years, it's his alma mater, you never have to worry about him being hired away, win everything you can possibly win. So the mood around Georgia right now is room for seconds. They got a taste of what being a champion is like. That never gets old. Never gets old. So when Kirby Smart got to Georgia, there were was, was some people who said, oh, he's come here to win a championship. Plenty more of them said, he's come here to win championships with an S on the end. Plural. You don't stop at one. No, one, no one's getting content down there. And the more you think about it, the more you will agree with that, if you even were content to begin with. Sustaining excellence, though, it's so hard. He knows that. Uh, This is not some segment if Kirby turned on that he'd go, I never thought about it that way. But, man, it's hard. What I am saying that for is not to temper any expectation. I'm telling you there will be a perception with any team that wins a championship that now that's the new baseline, so to speak. And so we got there, and now even if we turn the car engine off, You know, it's like going 200 miles. The car doesn't start going backwards when you turn it off. Well, that metaphor does not apply to success at all. It's like paying the rent every single day. You gotta pay it every single day. And if you don't pay it, you go backwards. And Kirby Smart knows that. He also knows every team has a life of its own. So a lot of the ingredients that were responsible for getting to Atlanta, losing to Alabama, but then steamrolling Michigan and then getting it done against Alabama, those guys, some of them are gone. And it's not just the talent. In fact, Georgia, more so than almost any other program in America, will have a disproportionately easier time replacing talent. The leadership, the, a lot of those guys were 21, 22 years old. Uh, they had been there forever. The leadership, we've seen many championship programs before, somewhat struggle. Now, Georgia's not going to eight win struggle, but somewhat struggle the following year. Anyway, the reason I say that is because moving forward now you get into that realm where you have to reload instead of rebuild they recruit in a manner that lets them do that but the biggest carrot on the stick for georgia fans right now is they know and i'll tell you i believe this too the program hasn't maximized its capability kirby smart knows this his staff knows this they just want a title this is how good they can be they just want a title and they could rightfully do an inventory of their program, and find several areas they can improve. Not massively, but if you look at the quarterback position, that's not as good as it can be at Georgia. If you look at perimeter skill, if you look at the wide receiver position, that's not as good as it could possibly be at Georgia. I'd even argue offensive line has not been as good as it can be. It's been plenty good enough to be one of the top overall teams and programs in the country, but my point there is there's still room to climb. Sometimes you end up winning the richest prize in your industry and you haven't maximized your own potential. Georgia just won a national championship. I don't even think the program has maximized its own potential. So that's got to be music to the ears of Georgia fans, especially because that's not myopic. That's truth. That's, if you watch Georgia offensively, there's no way you watch them and say, that's as good as it could ever possibly be around here. No, it's not. It was good enough. That's not as good as it can be around there. But also, let's not ignore... The shark fin that's always offshore. When you have some success, we talk about it on the show all the time. It's a blessing when you get to speak this way about your program. The consequences of success, you deal with them. George will deal with them. I want you to think back, however long you can. You can. You go college football. You can go NFL, Major League Baseball. Think about teams and organizations that win a championship, and then think about the stories you hear years later about the follow-up efforts, not just the next year, but the year after that, the year after that. Think about all the cautionary tales about how success changed a dynamic. That is a consequence of success. No one is immune to it, okay? It's a guarantee it's gonna happen. It's a guarantee that that stuff starts to creep in. Saban's dealt with it, Urban Meyer dealt with it, Kirby Smart will deal with it. They all deal with it. There is no cheat code, there's no magic elixir, there's no amount of motivational speeches you can give that changes the human condition. And the human condition says, once I've accomplished something, things change. And once I accomplish something, I've arrived, and it is just human nature to let up. So that's what you fight every day. Now they have created, I think, a very sustainable culture up there that mitigates that, but you're never immune to it. And you also have different potential problems that pop up that were never an issue. It was never even on your plate when you were nine and three or 10 and two. You get into these waters, they're pretty uncharted. In the modern era at Georgia, you get into these waters, you start learning those kinds of lessons. And really what Georgia's capable of, they're capable of being there every year. The only case study in the sport right now is Alabama. Maybe to a degree Clemson, but I think it's Alabama. I'm not talking about copying them. I'm talking about if you look at some of the issues they've had, if you listen to some of the things we've said about Bama in the past, there have been times they've played for a championship. I vividly remember that 2018 championship game against Clemson. They got blown out. I remember thinking, how is this team playing for a title? Because it was a mess behind the scenes. I mean, all sorts of distractions. Uh, I think that's probably one of Saban's least favorite groups that he's ever had. Team played for national title, so you never know. My point is, sometimes you can be so talented that that alone gets you to a certain point, but yet you still got issues behind the scenes that you were never dealing with before you won big. So Kirby Smart and Georgia just won big. They'll have those issues. One of the fun things about this, this sport is watching guys elevate and then watching how they handle those consequences once they've elevated to a certain point that kind of unlocks those consequences. But I'll tell you this, I was over on the junkyard earlier today over on the uh, Dogs 24-7 message board and one of you put it perfectly. You said, our rivals have nothing left. Don't overlook that, especially in that state. I'm from Georgia, especially in the state of Georgia where I'm from. For a long time, they had that one bullet in the holster. Even if you were beating them into a coma every year. Some fan bases around the SEC, they had that one go-to, and that is, well, we won a title in 98, or we won a title in 2010. W- when's your last title? It's not there anymore. It's gone. Uh, that is like a 1 million pound gorilla off of your back if you're a Georgia fan down there, because even though you pretended like it didn't eat at you, it ate at you. It, uh, especially... If those were people in your inner social circle, it ate at you. Well, they're very quiet now, aren't they? That's gone. Never coming back. Going be, to be decades and decades before that ever comes back. That's the Georgia mood tracker right now. It's a very good time to be in Athens, Georgia and be a Georgia Bulldog fan. Okay, let's uh, dive into the mailbag here because we have three that I want to get to. And the first one, well, I'll just read it and then I'll, I'll react. Phil asked, will the Big Ten ever catch the SEC from Altoona PA? I need to state this properly. The Big Ten's not hurting at all. So I, Phil, it was your question. I'm not trying to reword your question. But the, I guess the better question would be, will the rest of college football catch up to the SEC and the Big Ten? That would be a better structured question, but this is not a grammar class. So Phil, you want to know about this, and I'm going to tell you there is a gap, not a huge wide one, but there is a little gap here. It, I think it has to do with a couple of things. So the first thing is they need in the Big Ten another tier one program. What I'm going to say now is going to be misconstrued, but I'm going to say it anyway. Ohio State is the only tier one program in that conference, which should be common sense. But the immediate go-to for some will be, well, they lost two games last year, and they lost to Michigan last year. So if if they're Tier 1, Michigan's got to be Tier 1. That was a team last year. We're talking about a program. A program is more than a one-year snapshot. That's what a team is. Program is a rolling three- or four-year conglomeration of a whole lot of factors. Ohio State is Tier 1. No one else up there is. But there are a few Tier 2s. So we're talking about Michigan there. We're talking about Penn State, uh, Michigan State rapidly elevating. They need some of them, at least one of them, to elevate to tier one, because you're automatically working against Georgia and Bama. And then any given year, you could have Texas A&M ascend to tier one status. They're certainly recruiting that way. LSU has been there within the last few years, although I would argue that was a team more than a program, but they are capable. The resources make them capable. Florida's resources make them capable. Believe it or not, even Tennessee's resources make them capable of that. You've got to fulfill with your programs that are capable of that on that potential. That's the first thing they need. The second thing they need is that group of Nebraska and Iowa and Wisconsin. They've got to, I think, leverage the transfer portal in very unique ways. Because those are not programs that are going to compete heads up recruiting. Like They won't compete with Kentucky. Those three programs, Nebraska, Iowa, and Wisconsin will get smoked in an average year by Kentucky in recruiting. They they will get uh, handedly beaten by like eight or nine programs in the SEC. That's not the end of the world. What they have to do is develop supremely well, which they do, especially at two of those programs right now, but also they have to leverage the portal at the quarterback position and the wide receiver position. Take what you can't get out of the high school ranks from the portal, however you have to do it. If they can do that, then you can be very sustainable. That can be a sustainable model because you're not leaning on the portal to fill out your entire roster. You've identified specific positions that we need to really, really target in the portal, which is the way I don't doubt they're already doing it. Uh, Number three is just portal quarterbacks in general. Like at Penn State, they just got Drew Aller. So hopefully this becomes a non-issue. Hopefully, a five-star quarterback walking in there in time does the same thing for Penn State that Deshaun Watson did for Clemson. And hopefully, we never even have to talk about this again. And that elevates Penn State to Tier 1 status. I'm just talking about the conference in general. Unless you can do what Ohio State can do in recruiting, you, you've kind of got to pay a lot of attention to that portal. And I know that's easy to say. It's a whole lot harder to get a Caleb Williams out of the portal. I'm just saying it has to be a priority. You don't have Florida athletes in your backyard. You don't have California and Texas athletes in your backyard. But you've got very attractive programs, very attractive brands. Uh, they are about to double their overall revenue per year per university because of this new TV rights deal. There will be no shortage. You do it any way you have to do. But those are the three things that I think would close the gap uh, between the Big Ten and the SEC. Having already stated and will state one more time, that ain't the gap. The gap is from the big 10 behind to the three, four, and five positions in power five. Next up. All right, this is is what a lot of you have been waiting for for quite a while. Joey hits us up and said, who would you say is the most underrated program in the country? I got two of them and I was going at it with one of these fan bases earlier this week because they claim that we never talk about them on the show, but then we do Q&A every single week, multiple times a week. So it stands to reason, if you ask about them, maybe we'll talk about them. The Kentucky Wildcats are one of the two most underrated programs in America. Not teams, programs. Mark Stoops, it could be said, has the best job in America because he makes SEC money, but he has a fan base that is so totally in tune with their place in the college football world. That doesn't mean they're happy losing. They don't lose. This is not a losing program anymore. But they understand that there are some limitations we work against, but at the same time we keep investing over investing over investing in our program. So we keep elevating, but we also, we get it. We understand who we are. I don't think that there is a program in the SEC more in tune with its identity than Kentucky football fans. I I know that doesn't get a lot of national attention, but it's true. Mark Stoops has done an overly phenomenal job there. They've got a couple of 10 win seasons over the last few years. But also, I noticed this the other day, and it just, it has to be pointed out. They have that program at a place now where the preseason win total, the over under win total is eight and a half. That means Kentucky football now has to win nine games just for the over to hit. There was a time not too long ago, especially in the, the early portion of the Stoops era and before, where, if your total was in the, the five or six range, th- that gave you hope that you could make a bowl game and it got a lot of people excited. It's just a whole new day for Kentucky football. They're totally secure in their identity. Uh, they, they linearly progressed, especially after that first Stoops year, they linearly progressed from 2013 to 2018. He turned that program around from two and 10 to 10 and 3, and they improved every single year. It was not an up and down thing. And then they've stayed there, and they recruit surprisingly well. I think if if I were to put the top 20 in no particular order in front of a random fan from, let's say, Cody, Wyoming, and I were to say, hey, some SEC teams landed in the top 20 this year. Why don't you guess them? They would go like 12 or 13 deep before they named Kentucky. And yet there's Kentucky. We're sitting there on National Signing Day this past cycle, and we're talking about Kentucky. Um, we will talk about them more because they continue to do things that warrant being talked about. And that, that schedule this year sets up for some very special things to potentially happen. I asked the question the other day about Will Levis. There's some hype around Will Levis, the quarterback there right now. And look, we don't do mock drafts on this show, period, but forget about the first overall projection stuff for a second because it, it just it doesn't add anything to the conversation. Here's what you need to know. You need to know Kentucky has a guy with pro tools at quarterback. You need to know that while they lost Wondell Robinson, uh, they have done things to address that in the transfer market themselves. They also have a proven philosophy. They also have proven productivity and also the ability to develop guys there, where just because you don't know the names entering the season doesn't mean they won't perform. But the schedule allows them, if things fall right, to be in contention and be in a conversation that you have not had Kentucky football in in quite a while. Kentucky's one of the most underrated programs in America. And the other one is in Stillwater, Oklahoma, a town I was in like last week. Oklahoma State's incredible. They never get talked about nationally. Oklahoma State, I had to look this up to make sure it was true. Someone texted me this stat. Since 2008, that's a long time ago. Since 2008, they only have two seasons where they have failed to win at least eight games. They've got seven double-digit win seasons since 2008. Seven. I think Mike Gundy, Colin gave me this deck. Mike Gundy won coach of the year in like 2010 and 2020. There was like a 10-year span between him winning coach of the year. He won double-digit games five times between. Winning coach of the year awards there in the Big 12. They're 11 and 5 in bowl games. And then here's the capper. Because you could do this if you recruited at a top 10 level every year. They average a signing class in the low to mid 30s. That's their average ranking in recruiting. Nothing screams, we know who we are, we know what we're doing, leave us alone, more than averaging a 9 or a 10 win season every year, being in the conversation in the Big 12 championship picture every single year, and yet, you're never there on signing day. We're never talking about Oklahoma State on signing day. I picture Mike Gundy yawning on signing day. Dude may not even come into the office until like 1130. He probably gets a quick nine in while everyone else is sitting around huddled close to a fax machine, partly because it gives off heat that early in the morning, and partly because that's our entire lifeline. The pieces of paper that come through that fax machine, that is what will make or break us. And Mike Gundy is like, I'll just just send me whoever you have left over. We'll, we'll go beat you with them, and we'll quietly be in the Big 12 championship picture. I'll go and I'll, I'll make $5 million. The rest of you can make more. It goes a long way in Stillwater anyway. I'm good. Kentucky and Oklahoma State. Think about the hype that several other programs out there. I'm thinking of one in Austin, uh, and I'm not knocking Texas. I kind of am, uh, but I'm not doing it in a disrespectful way. I just think about every year, us coming into a season and talking about the order of finish and how tempted you always seem to be to put that Longhorn logo up above that Oklahoma State logo. Because you always think about those signing classes Texas has and if it pans out and if this and if that. And it just, it almost never happens or hasn't in recent history. Oklahoma State and Kentucky. paid State material. One and all. Last question. And boy, this one got spirited today. Look at that. I have presented a question. So Josh, a friend of the program, asks, what is the best time zone for college football fans to reside in? This led to a shockingly spirited debate today. And I'm telling you, I fancy myself as sort of a chameleon when it comes to this sort of thing. So I don't think there's a wrong answer. And uh, full disclosure, I believe I would thrive in any of these environments, but we had a lot of East Coast flavor early on. The Eastern time zone, is what I grew up in. I live in Central now. But the pro there is, you can get things done in the morning. So think about your college football Saturday. If you're in the Eastern time zone, the first game's not kicking off until high noon. The entire structure of the day is formatted on Eastern time. So the first game kicks off at high noon. I used to be able to go to the gym and like do things around town in the morning before getting back home for those noon kickoffs. That's the pro. The con is, you have to be a borderline serial killer to be able to stay up late enough to watch the conclusion of all the West Coast games. Some of those things don't wrap up till 1:30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And if you're going full degenerate gambler mode and you're letting it all riot on Hawaii, then it could be it could be sunrise before you finally have head hit pillow at night. But then you go over to the Central Time Zone where I live now, and I prefer the Central Time Zone to the Eastern Time Zone. I like what we have here because it's It's the same thing pretty much as Eastern. Like if you get out of bed early enough, you can still get stuff done in the morning, but everything just seems to make you not wait as long. I I cannot describe to you in thorough enough emphasis how different it is only having to wait to 2.30 than having to wait to 3.30 or a game starting at 6.30 instead of 7.30. It makes all the difference in the world. And so you get an hour on the back end of your day. So hopefully things are ending at midnight instead of 1 or 2.00. Central is better to me than Eastern, although I have lived in both and I have managed, but then you get to the mountain time zone. One of you was emphatic in your suggestion that this is the best time zone because it gave you essentially flexibility on both ends of the social spectrum. So if you're one that wants to go out a little bit later, if you can afford to sacrifice the late games, your day is free by like four or five. But even if you want a piece of the night games, they're wrapping up before midnight. They're wrapping up by 11, 11, 15, but also the early games start at 10 a.m., which means you have sort of that in-between mode there, but you have, for the early risers, enough time to do stuff, but also if you just prefer to wake up and let college football be your alarm clock, you can get straight out of bed, sleep in, and then 9.30, get your quick breakfast, boom, 10 a.m., the noon kickoffs are happening on the East Coast. But I was doing radio in Portland this morning, Well, it was early morning for them. It was later morning for me. And they sold me pretty significantly on the West Coast lifestyle. Now, that is a 9 a.m. kickoff for the first window of games. And that's a turnoff for a lot of people, and certainly it would take some adjusting. But I'm up early anyway. What appeals to me is the back end. What appeals to me is having things done by 9 or 10 o'clock, somewhere in that range. But... Also, if there are games still going on that late, it's your game. So you're not, you're not already engaged in your game earlier in the day and you're watching stuff that maybe is you know, half a world away from your emotion. If you're on the West Coast, the games that those of us in the Eastern and Central time zones stay up late to watch are your games. So if you're like an Arizona, Arizona State fan, UCLA fan, well, it's, it doesn't matter how late you're staying up because it's the game that you were going to watch even if it was 3 a.m., But the last point I want to make, because we've got a viewer who lives in Maui and was sharing this with me the other day, because I never thought about this. Uh, Some of you live in Hawaii. The Hawaiian lifestyle, when it comes to college football, has to be amazing. Think about this. If you're in Toccoa, Georgia, think about the Hawaiian lifestyle. The Hawaiian college football fan takes a 6 a.m. kickoff for the noon games on the East Coast. They then get into the second window, and McDonald's is still serving breakfast, and then the late games start in the very, very early afternoon, and they're done. By four or five o'clock, they're done. The sun has not set, and all of college football is done. So think about watching an entire day, including the late games, and then heading out for dinner. Not even a late dinner, just dinner. I would not get used to that in year one. But if I moved out there by year two, I think I would swear by the Hawaiian viewership experience. Oh, and also, I hear the scenery is pretty good. And I probably would just never come back. Maybe if one of you leased some private aviation to me. Otherwise, I would never come back. Appreciate you guys being tuned in. Look, 100,000 subs, that's what we need. Subscribe, and then we can all unlock the surprise together. Producer Jesse, not here, gets zero credit for tonight's show. Although he has a place in our hearts, he's enjoying his vacation. For Director Colin, for our production executives, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your weekend, and God bless.